If you've been in any of our Wednesday night services, we've been teaching for a couple weeks now on spirit, soul, and body, and mind, will, and emotions. And with that kind of teaching, it strips all excuses from us. We are now able to troubleshoot anything wrong within us. If there's anything wrong with your heart, I don't mean your blood pumper, but I mean that cardia, that entity that is your essence, that is your purpose. If there's anything wrong with your heart, we've learned how we can troubleshoot it by breaking down our mind, our will, and our emotions. Your heart is the manifestation of what you think and keep thinking, what you want and keep wanting, and what you emote and keep emoting. So to troubleshoot any heart problem, you fix it by troubleshooting where it's coming from. If you don't like somebody, figure out why and adjust it. If you don't like something about your marriage, figure out why and adjust it. If there's something you do that sets your spouse off, figure out what that is and why you're doing it. We can no longer just say, I don't know. And at the same time, if we're the frustrated spouse, we can no longer say, I just wish you'd be different. That's not going to help anything. Uh, You're going to have to spend time troubleshooting each other and putting things into practice. It's probably a good day to dry up a lot of media in your life. I'm not saying forever. Some of you are still kind of a little conspiratorial. Uh, You're on too many YouTube videos. How about you fast YouTube videos for a month? You will not die. Maybe you need to fast talk radio because that's affecting your heart. It's affecting how you think. It's affecting how you reason. It's affecting your emotions. Maybe you fast media of all kinds. If your heart is not changing for the glory of God, you've got to figure out the source that's keeping you from changing. Because you come to church, and I don't seem to be able to change you. So I'm just a man, but I preach the eternal word of God, do my best to flow with the eternal spirit of God, and the word of God and the spirit of God ought to be able to change you unless you're feeding on other stuff 99% of the time and only your local church 1%. In dealing with family, our family problems can only be fixed by unwrapping our soul and understand why we think the way we keep thinking, why we act the way we keep acting, understand why we keep emotionalizing, what we emotionalize. And so uh, we're not going to fix any marriage problem overnight. When you go to marriage therapy, they're doing the exact same thing to you. They're asking, why does that upset you? All right. Is there something you can do to not do that? So she won't be upset or vice versa. They're asking you to, they're asking you questions so you can begin to dissect yourself and go, Oh, that's why. And honestly, what most marriage therapy is doing is getting you as husband and wife to do is talk. Now, I'm not against therapy. Some folks really need it. I probably could benefit from it. I deal with you guys. I, I, could probably, <laughs> I could probably use some therapy myself. But why let it get to the point where you got to pay $150 a session to talk to each other when you could just make time at home and do it for freeze? Except the reason you won't do it for free is because it hasn't gotten bad enough to have to pay money to do it yet. So either way, that's a foolish predicament to get into. When you do talk, you got to make sure you do it where both of you have have refused to get offended by whatever is said. So you got to make time to talk. And then the reason men won't open up more is they're afraid of being judged or condemned. And and by judgment in this context, I mean condemned. We're all for judging, as in troubleshooting each other, but we got to be able to troubleshoot without condemning you and saying, you're an idiot, you're a fool, you're a stup- stupid person. Why would you do that? we got to be able to say, that's wrong. Please don't do that anymore, and nobody get offended at that. But when we come together to talk, you got to make sure you're able to speak your mind and speak your emotion and speak your will and talk about what you want out of marriage and talk about where you're not having your needs supplied or where your expectations are not being met. There's got to be an openness of communication. And you've got to learn to do this before you have kids, because once kids get into the picture, it gets even busier. And then all of a sudden you're spending all your time and it's about shuffling the kids around. By the time you're an empty nester, you have no relationship anymore with each other. So you're probably not going to get anything fixed after that unless there's a miracle and both of you are just dog nagged, nabbed, determined to fix it for the glory of God. But you, you've got to be able to communicate one with another to maintain unity. What we don't understand 
uh, with the husband and wife relationship is that it is, it is the nexus. It is the prototype. It's the archetype of relationship where you have ultimate unity, ultimate companionship. You have ultimate faith, ultimate prayer of agreement. But we're not able to work that much anymore in the modern day because we're pulled in so many different directions. We believe our cultural lies that our kids have to be involved in everything which is a lie because then you spend most of your time chasing the kids all over, band practice, soccer practice, gymnastics practice, basketball practice, drama practice, and your, your marriage is being pulled apart trying to give your kids the American experience. I don't want my kids to have the American experience. There's nothing I lived through in the 80s that I think my kids can go to heaven without ever needing to experience. My kids are going to live the way they're called to live now. So we've got to be able to make sure, first and foremost, your marriage is most important because your kids are going to be really weird if you get a divorce. So kids are secondary. Hear me, mama. Kids are secondary. Hear me, husband. Kids are secondary. And you don't have kids to get the affection your spouse isn't giving you. That's weird, too. You don't have that little girl to get the affection your wife won't give you. You don't have that little boy to have the affection your husband won't give you. Kids are secondary. But see, now we're jumping into the midst of a mess that's already there. This is why I teach so much to our single people so that they don't start off on the wrong leg like I'm trying to fix 20 years into a marriage. When you get married, you want to make sure you are a pretty put together individual. I do not believe every Christian qualifies for marriage. Off, it always goes quiet on that. Okay, let me back it up. Those of you with kids, is there just anybody you want to marry your kid? So they don't qualify, do they? So you agree with me, at least with your kid. Then again, does your kid qualify to marry everybody out there? I'm trying to think if I want to push this button. There's some of your kids I would never want to marry my kids. You got to have standards. Might as well have the highest possible. I don't believe every Christian should be married because they're, gonna, they're, they're half a Christian themselves. They're half dysfunctional themselves. They're half needy, half lonely, half lusty themselves. And then you put that together with another person who they're going to draw because they're not going to draw a winner. So now we put together two dysfunctional people. And what is the chance of success? Now they bring kids into it. What's going to happen to those kids? When you've got two dysfunctional people coming together, fighting, scrapping, dysfunctional, needy, your kids are going to be brought up in that whirlwind. What will become of those kids? And then it gets repeated, and then it gets repeated, and then it gets repeated. But we, were, we went to church. Now the church looks bad because it looks like we're not able to fix and make disciples. When really discipleship is your responsibility, not mine. It's your job to find a disciple. It's your job to be changed. It's your job to want that pressure on you. It's your job to look at a high standard and say, I want that. I'm not settling for this. That's your job. So again, I say, I don't think every Christian needs to be married. I believe in marriage. Absolutely. But I don't think every person's ready because marriage fixes nothing. But when you're strong and you're joined together with another strong believer, now you can put the 10,000 to flight that Ecclesiastes speaks of. Now the prayer of agreement works into your advantage, and now you can come together and do work for the kingdom. I've kept saying this over and over again because we need to hear it. I don't think just because you're a Christian you should be married. The Bible teaches me from example after example, first four marriages of the Bible, if you're serving in the kingdom, you're going to need help in the kingdom. If you're not serving in the kingdom, I don't care if you're born again, you don't need to be married. You can disagree with me that all day long, but I don't just have biblical evidence. I have anecdotal evidence. I have life experience evidence. You need to be serving God to need a second person in your life so you can do more for God. So we're talking about this unity thing. When you have issues in your marriage, and I guess I'm on this because maybe there's more going on in our congregation than I perceive right now. When you have issues, you've got to be able to sit down and talk and make regular appointments to talk. What we, what often folks want is they want the honeymoon the rest of their life, and it doesn't work that way. 
the stages of marriage get into, the, in, into process. And you've got honeymoon stage, and, and then you've got building wealth stage, and then kids come along, you have parenting stage, and then you've got to begin to find the, and harness the honeymoon stage and the passion stage, and then your kids are middle age, and you're middle age stage, and you're building wealth stage, and the kids are going off to college stage. It doesn't stay dating stage. It doesn't stay first year or two where you're running around the house every evening buck naked chasing each other. It doesn't stay that way because then kids come along and they start asking questions. and <laughs> You know they're going to pray about it in little tots, so you just don't, you just got to. <laughs> because our kids pray whatever they hear at home in toddlers, and you're like, mm, all right, I'll be praying for your dad too. <laughs> Part of marriage, I'd say the biggest part of marriage is maintaining communication. And we've been hitting on this a little bit. We're going to settle on a verse here in a minute. So we've said women require more communication. That's the number one complaint I hear out of every woman I help, every marriage I help in private. I need more communication out of my husband. I need no vision. Where are we going? What's he need me to do? What's he want us to do with the kids? What are we doing financially? So men, we are negligent often in communicating. And we've got to improve that. Now, part of what you need to do then is put this thing on your phone schedule and schedule not just a romantic date, but a communication date. On your jobs, gentlemen, you know that you don't get the job done without half a dozen meetings a week. And however big your job is, you might have 20 meetings a week. So you need to make that one of those meetings be with your wife so you guys can debrief or discuss that way, the kids are not there, depending on what age your kids are. It's just you and your wife, and you talk about it. Maybe some of you already do that. It's in bed at night as you're laying down going to sleep. But you need to have a certain time where you're talking. And that means, husbands, you've got to practice. Bring, wives, don't be upset if he brings a daytimer with him or an iPad with a checklist. Just be happy he's communicating. You wives are begging for communication. Beggars can't be choosers. Just rejoice. He's got a punch list. He's got a PowerPoint. He's got a grease board. Just, it's an it's a extravaganza. Just be happy. We're, having, we're talking about what we're doing this week in 105 slides. It's a place to start. <laughs> it's not him sitting on the couch looking at Facebook or memes or ESPN. Just ha be happy. And then at the same time, we've joked about it, but women, honest to goodness, quit over-communicating. Amen. I'm not joking about it now. I'm like, really, you want to talk? We give you our ear. You waste time. Honest to God. You talk about things that are pointless. It's a detail that is not worth mentioning. You husbands are too afraid to say amen, but you know it's the truth. I'm giving you an hour. We covered nothing. You made 30 minutes from this morning take two hours to rehearse because you stopped along the way and told us what you were thinking when Betty said that. What does Betty have to do with what we're doing with the kids? So honestly, women, just like you want more communication out of us, we want less out of you. Learn to communicate more efficiently because we're, our lives are getting busy. Our lives are getting busy. We'll give you our ear. We got to be better. I'm not, I'm not disparaging that, but wives, you got to be better too. Figure out what are the high points. I'll even tell my wife sometimes, fast forward, not important. I just interject. Not important. Next thought. She gets it. I'm not going for laughs. I'm just going for honesty. Amen. But see, at the same time, men, we've got to be willing to talk more and listen and troubleshoot. Otherwise, we've got our partner, our prayer partner, who, with whom we can put 10,000 to flight. And the reason we're not putting 100 to flight is because we're not communicating at all. And let me also tell you men, though, if you don't get your act together, you may lose your wife. Somebody better than you will marry her. Somebody more sober than you will marry her and take better care of her than you. So you got to make sure. I know the man trap. The man trap is you find other things to keep you so busy so you have justifiable excuses not to be around your wife or kids. That's not a man. That's a coward. Now, I don't mean to beat up on your cowardice, but you've got to figure out why you're such a coward and quit being such a coward. Get to the root of your cowardice and be a man. A man doesn't serve Pharaoh three jobs. A man takes care of his family. He makes the sacrifice for his family. 
He's not gone three jobs a week so he can never be with his wife and his kids in the house of God. A coward runs from his responsibilities. So figure out where the cowardice is coming from. But sit down and talk and communicate. Because if not, I'm here in 1 Peter 3, go there. If not, if we don't have this communication, our prayers will be hindered. There's no more powerful entity outside the local church than husband and wives praying together. So I would ask you, what are you and your, your spouse praying for? What are you and your spouse believing God for? Is it coming to pass? Because Jesus Christ says, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. That's marriage right there too. You could turn your bedroom into the altar of God, into Bethel, the house of God, just by praying every night, by coming into agreement, saying this is what we're believing God for. What would, and the wife keeps the husband connected to the kids and says, honey, I need wisdom for the children. This is what your daughter's struggling with. This is what your son's struggling with. How do we pray about that? And you guys begin to communicate about pointful things, not pointless things. And we pray about that. We're not praying about what Betty said or what you thought about what Betty said. We're praying about what deals with our family now. Not to mean it can't be all, it can't all be business or doesn't need to all be business. So you can have nonchalant talking time. But even then, ladies, please understand, if your husband is busy, he is mentally managing so many things. And at the same time, men, be able to mentally manage your wife's conversations when they're important to her and we have to find a balance. We need to both come to the middle road on this thing. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge or intelligent recognition, giving reverence unto the wife. Now, you know how you reverence your wife? You stop doing the things that make her feel low class. Husbands, ask your wife, what do I do that makes you feel second class? And if you're going to obey this Bible verse as a man of God, you reverence her by stopping that behavior. Honey, what makes you feel second class? What makes you feel cheap? What makes you feel unloved, un unappreciated? What makes you feel less than what you ought to feel? That's how you reverence your wife. And then, honey, you got to be able to be honest with him. Brutally honest. And dude, don't fall apart and be a sissy about the thing. Honey, your wives, you ought to be able to tell your husbands, this is what you do that embarrasses me. And that doesn't mean it's justified, but at least you communicate it. And at the same time, if he starts to waver or quiver, tell him some things he does that makes you feel proud. So we balance this thing. Everybody's a little bit different. I like to just be told straight because I can fix anything. Just tell me what's broken. I'll fix it. So I don't need to be sugarcoated. I like to be encouraged and I like to be told where my wife's proud of me, but just shoot me straight too so I can fix it. And if you have to remind me three times this month or three times today, that's all right. I'm learning something new. I can do this. I'm a smart guy and I'm a disciplined guy. I can fix anything. And I think all you other guys in here, you're smart and you're disciplined too. You can fix it if your wives would communicate it to you without nagging. Please understand, nagging triggers this thing in the man's head that just shuts everything off. Nagging accomplishes nothing. If you have to, write letters and texts and emails, spell it out in balloons, make a brownie that says you're a jerk. Let him know one way or another what he's doing that is making you feel second class because if I'm a man, I've got to honor this verse right here. I have to give honor unto my wife. I need to reverence her. I reverence my wife. I reverence her which means I value her and whatever I do that makes her feel unimportant, I fix. And at the same time, ma'am, if you have to tell him 50 times, tell him 50 times. He has a lot of stuff on his plate and he needs to be reminded constantly, 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 constantly. Please, can we go on a date? Please, can we have breakfast together? Please, can we put the kids down early and just stay up talking? Tell him. And then maybe if you have connection with your phone, your husband's phone, put it on his calendar, set up three alarms on it so it goes off. So he knows tonight we put the kids down early and we're going to sit up, have coffee, and we're going to talk about the week and just talk. You have to put these things in your marriage because the world is getting faster. Our culture is getting more frenetic and frantic. So it's sucking our attention and only you control your calendar and your clock. Only you control it. You have to learn to tell people no. Your boss will fire you tomorrow and not apologize. So don't give him your life or your marriage. 
It's a tenuous balance because without the boss, you don't provide for your children. But if the boss begins to destroy your wife and your children, you need to tell the boss bye. And trust God that you'll honor him and he'll provide another job for you. You can't just take your job and think, well, God gave me this job. If it's starting to cost you your walk with God, your walk with your wife, your walk with your kids, it's not a blessing from God anymore. You've got to begin to set your faith to find a better job. Because the boss will fire you. The company will fire you. They'll just give you a pink slip, no severance pay, and they'll just kick you out. You won't even know on your way to work that morning. So don't honor them more than your family. Your family is the greatest thing God's given you. So whatever you, your wife needs to be honored, and honestly, that's going to be an assignment right now for you married couples. What, honey, write it down for us. Tell me, I want to know where I'm not honoring my wife because I want my marriage better. And our wives will absorb a lot. They'll take a lot of dishonor because they, they give us grace. They realize we're busy. We got a lot of irons in the fire. But I want to know because I'm a capable man. And what's one more iron to me? But if my wife doesn't squeak, I don't know to give attention. I think a lot of our marriages can grow that way. So one of your assignments is, wives, I want you to be able to tell your husband today, this is where you dishonor me. And I want you boys to be mature enough to handle it. Well, we have the perfect marriage. No, you don't. There's no such thing. There's somewhere he slights you because he just doesn't know any better. Tell him. Come up with something. Nitpick if you have to. If your marriage is that awesome, nitpick. Say, okay, I want the toothpaste squeezed from the bottom. That would really honor my soul. And if he says, I'll do you one better, you get your own toothpaste. And I get my own toothpaste. And then you can squeeze it however you want to. Giving honor unto the wife. What do you do that makes her feel second class? And quit it. You boast yourself a man. You boast yourself authoritative. Exercise some of that on your own soul. Boy, <laughs> what makes, what does she squawk about the most? Why does she have to squawk this much? You're not honoring her. Where's your addiction? Who do you spend more time with than her? Don't forget, this is supposed to be the wife of your youth. She doesn't just make your babies and fix your dinner. Be a man and fix your addiction or you're no man at all. Drop your tobacco habit. Drop your vaping habit. Drop your porn habit. Drop your alcohol addiction. Be the man she deserves. Honor her. Otherwise, you're a selfish man. Amen. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. We've covered that, that she does so much, and yet the Bible calls her the weaker vessel. Men do so little, and by default, we're supposed to be the stronger vessel. So help your wife with chores around the house. Help your wife keep the house clean. Help your wife maintain her car. Help your wife do, do something. You're not just working 90 hours a week for Pharaoh and then wanting sex. Do something to take the burden off of her. And it says, as uh, being heirs together, the grace of life. So she is equal to you, heirs together. So she's both not equal and equal. She's not equal in her physical, her biology, but she's equal to you in the spirit. We must honor them on both regards and understand your wife can hear from God for you better than you can sometimes. There's something powerful about a woman who prays for her husband. Many times the whole marriage is held together exclusively by the wife because the husband's such a spiritual dolt. He doesn't even know what's going on. And her prayers and her intercessions are keeping him alive because she just loves that sluggard so much. Listen to her when she says, honey, I don't feel good about this. Honey, I'm praying and I think you need to stop this. Most of us men know if it weren't for our wives, we wouldn't have much of a marriage at all. That's the American experience. And for God's sake, for the kingdom's sake, you need to make sure you are the healthy one, husbands, who are carrying the full load of your marriage. Just think about a marriage if husband worked as hard as wife at the marriage. Awfully, awfully quiet. Shall we stand and read the doxology or something? Why are you so quiet? <laughs> now, here's what I wanted to get to that your prayers be not hindered. The Greek says cut off. 
So you're praying. I would assume you're a Christian family. Both of you are praying, maybe not always together. But here's an issue that your prayers can be cut off, and it has everything to do with the husband's ineptitude in leading the wife. It has everything to do with the husband's inability to lead his wife. So really, as men, we have to be men. Let's go to it's either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians at the end. Yep, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Side note here, there's a lot of talk right now that the Bible is gender neutral, which is hogwash. (laughs) If that's the new stance people are taking, because you know there's neither male nor female, there's neither male nor female, but there is male and female. But the Bible says there's neither male nor female. Right, but there is. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, but there is. There's neither bond nor free, but there is. If there's neither male nor female, why would he say husbands and then wives? If there's neither bond nor free, why would he say servants, obey your masters? If there's neither Jew nor Gentile, why would he say he's salvation first to the Jew and then the Gentile? I mean, this is simple theology here, but we just so wokey-dokey. 1 Corinthians 16. Let's look at some gender-oriented commandments. Verse 13, King James. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men. That means be brave like a man. Uses the term man. To act like a man. That's what the Greek says. Be strong. So there's some very strong gender verbiage. Stand in the faith, quit ye like men. That means basically pull up your pants and act like a man. I just like that. I like that verse. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, act like a man, and be strong. What a commandment. So what is it, be, what is it like to be a man? You're leading. You're up early praying. You're up late praying. You have vision for your family. You have vision for your children. Mama's taking care of their day-to-day needs because she's the more of a nurturer. But as a husband, as the father, you're looking more long-term. You're looking long-term care at your wife. You're making sure you're encouraging her. You're making sure you can see where she's growing, where she needs to grow. You yourself are submitted to the house of God, the man of God, the word of God, and everybody's submitted upward. We're not never submitted downward, staying the same or dissolving into our culture around us. Why would you want to be like an American? Why would you want to be like a woke college professor? Why would you want to be like Hollywood or a politician? That's not our calling. That's a demotion. We're called to be like Christ, but that's all of us in our place coming upward, male and female, husband and wife, bond and free. But the key is for men to be men and quit being such cowards and to stand strong. So single girls, you don't find a coward. You don't find an insecure man and you don't marry a mama's boy. These are recipes for misery. And I'm trying to get to a place where as we march forward into the future, we're marrying marriages that take very little maintenance. We're marrying marriages that, boy, we prop them up and they just go. And they don't have to come back to my office every six weeks, every six months. They don't need care deacons checking up on them because they didn't obey the scriptures in the first place. So we're raising a standard. And if you didn't marry according to that standard, here's your therapy. Here's how you fix it. Men, change. Be men. Don't sit to pee. Stand. Having done all to stand, stand again. (laughs) Be strong in the faith. The problem is if our marriages aren't unified, the faith isn't working. If husbands and wives aren't in unity, their faith isn't working. If their faith isn't working, what they're praying for is not coming to pass. Now, that's horrible. Can you imagine if every Christian home in America, prayers weren't being answered in those homes? We pray to get answers. We pray to change things. We pray to turn the will of God into the earth. We pray to make the kingdom come on earth just like it is in heaven. So the, the family unit, which the government hates, which politicians hate, which Hollywood hates, which the wokest hate, the, the biblical family is the source of heaven on earth. We teach it to our kids. We bring it down into our prayer closet. We bring it down in our bedroom, down at our kitchen table, down in our family room, and we put it on our kids and we send them out. But if husband and wives aren't unified, 
there's no heaven coming down into that home. Kids are coming to church, but they're not having any heaven in their home. So we have to be unified in our home. And it starts with our soul. If mama's upset, husband, you got to take care of that. If mama's not secure, husband, that's your problem. If she doesn't trust you, husband, that's your problem. If she's fearful for your inability to provide, that's your problem, husband. I thought you were the man. But sometimes, man, we just throw so many attitudes. Women just, they back off and they won't let us know because they don't want to cause a fight. We've got to desire unity in our marriage more than anything else. We've got to get our minds in unison. We've got to get our emotions in unison. We've got to get our desires in unison. We've got to get our souls in unison. And men in our nation are cowards. They hide behind walls. They put walls up. They have tough men complex. You know, they do all these things that make them look tough. So you can't actually get to what's really gnawing at them in their soul. We've got to make sure in our marriages that as husbands, we're open to our wives so they can nurture us, care for us, care for us, care for us, pray for us. I was talking to a lady the other day. She said, my husband just won't let me in. I don't want to control his life. I just want to know how he's thinking so I can help him. That's a coward. That's someone who's fearful. We as men have got to be able to drop our guard and say, I'm insecure here. I'm terrified here. I think this is what you're going to think of me here. I'm really, I'm embarrassed about this. My pastor points out, he says, I don't get it. Husbands and wives can get naked and have sex, but they can't talk. They can get naked, see parts only the doctor sees, and they can't talk. That's a broken marriage. We're here to fix it, but you got to want it fixed. We want to make sure we find unity so that our prayers are not hindered. So you got to be able to share what you're thinking. Husbands, that means more talking. Wives, that means curbed talking, efficient talking. You want to be able to share your emotions. Men, that means you got to have some other than fear or anger. You want to be able to balance each other with your emotions because marriages are supposed to be emotional. Emotions doesn't mean bad. Emotions are joy. There should be a lot of joy in your home. There should be a lot of laughter in your home. There should be some repentance in your home. There should be some excitement in your home. There should be a place where your kids want to come home to. Wives, it ought to be a place where your husband wants to come home to. Husbands, it ought to be a place where your kids want to come home to. Too often we can tell our marriages are broken because nobody wants to come home. It's a good thing when your kids leave and want to come home. Like they graduate and they can't wait to come home again. Many kids, they leave and they say, I ain't never coming back. That means mom and dad failed. That means there's nothing dear to them that they want to come back to. There's nothing but trauma, hostility, conniving, anger, angst, frustration. They, why would you want to come home to that? It's just a house. At that point, it's just a house with bad memories. You want to make sure you live in such a way that your kids grow up and they want to come back. There's joy. There's love. There's intimacy. There's happiness. There's fun. There's fond memories. There isn't just, that's where my dad beat me for no reason. That's where mom threw the frying pan at dad. That's where my dad cussed my kid's sister. I don't want to come home to this place. I'll help burn it down if you want. You don't want that to be your upbringing or your kid's upbringing. So we got to make sure we're talking and communicating one with another, beholding each other face to face. Texting is okay in the day, but at some point you got to tag up and see each other and talk face to face. Have coffee, make an appointment. Make your time work. Buy a babysitter if you have to. Spend the money because it's a lot cheaper than divorce court. But your marriage does, isn't a self-made garden. It must be tended regularly. And husbands, part of your job is to make sure your wife is fearless. But you're never going to do that if you yourself is full of fear. So you got to make sure you're able to tell your wife where you're full of fear because she's probably not afraid in that area and she can help you. Trying to troubleshoot your marriage, because if I can get this unlocked, we can fix sex problems, which is really where I wanted to talk about this morning, but it's not fitting just yet. Husbands, you got to make sure your wives are fearless. That doesn't mean they're not afraid of spiders or afraid of, you know, something happened to their baby, because that's, that's, those are rational fears. It's rational to be afraid of a snake falling out of a tree while you're gardening. That's rational, because it's possible. Not that it's going to happen, though it might be fun if you had a rubber snake and you threw it over your wife while she was gardening. Do it once. 
My parents keep a rubber snake on their front porch and it gets me almost every time. I don't know why my dad does that because he's, he's just like that. And I walk up and like, oh, there it is again. Why does he do that? They also keep a rubber rat. Did you see the rat this weekend at their house? They have a rubber rat that would, oh, why do they do that? That's messed up. This is why I left at 17 and I didn't come back. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about rational fears, but there are times you've got to be able to pull alongside your wife and say, it's going to be okay. But that means you recognize that it's not okay, and her mind is thinking it's not going to be okay, and her emotions are starting to boil up. But if you don't ever come home because you're busy serving Pharaoh, you won't ever recognize when she's not okay, and she's learned by now just to act like it's okay, and this is why your marriage is deader than a doorknob. There has to be that tagging up, that constant connection, that constant talking. What's going on? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? And it doesn't involve Betty or what your thoughts was when Buddy said that thing this morning. So get Betty out of your marriage and talk about what's really active and important. This takes practice. The church's divorce rate is like the world's. So we, we really need help in this arena. You got to learn to be honest and sit down and talk. And don't date somebody who's a liar. Don't date somebody who can't be honest. Don't fall in love with somebody who can't lead. And don't marry a needy person. Those are pretty simple things because this is heavy-handed and it hurts our marriages. All right, let's find a verse. Let's go to Ephesians real quick, chapter 5, because we're talking about God's blueprint for marriage. Ephesians chapter 5. You'll retire from your boss one day. Maybe he'll bake you a happy retirement cake, but he will never be your wife or your kids. And it would just be horrible to get to the end of your career and realize you sacrificed your kids to do what? To build a new car for Detroit? You got to the end of your career and you did what? You treated patients better than you treated your family? That you invested more in your students than you did your marriage? I would hate to give my life to a career and not have kids to show for it. So this has to be held in balance because we are to serve our masters with all diligence, but our family comes before our career. Our family comes before our career. My family comes before this church because this church has demonstrated you'll abandon me in a heartbeat, slander me on Facebook, and never say thank you for the three times I kept you from going to jail. So it's a tenuous balance because the office on my life wants to have compassion, but reality says, let them go. Hopefully they make heaven, but probably not going to happen. But I can make sure my kids and my wife make heaven. Amen. Ephesians 5, verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. He that loves his wife loves himself. He that loves his wife loves himself because she is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. When you're praying for your wife, you're praying for your own body. That body is now yours. Your body is now hers. So let me just tell some of you, some of you have unhealthy habits. Some of them are chemical dependencies. That means you are an addict. If you dip, you're an addict. If you're a drunk, you are an addict. If you're, under, if you're overweight, you are an addict. If you're under porn, you are an addict. And you're destroying your spouse's body. If we were to take it just a step further, we would say you are incredibly selfish. Because it's not even your body. Number one, it's God's body. Number two, it's your spouse's body. So you don't have a right to keep eating the way you're eating, to keep dipping, snuffing, vaping, huffing the way you are, to looking at stuff that's not yours, porn. To be a drunk, you're destroying the body that belongs to your spouse. He that loves his wife loves himself. You've got to take care of your body because it belongs to your spouse, and they want you around a lot longer. Amen. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. Your, body, your wife is your own flesh. Your husband's your own flesh. Women are really good at this. They're always making you something to keep you fed. They want to bake you something to eat. What can I get you to eat? That's a good woman right there. I know that sounds 1950s. Actually, it sounds 1950 BC to me. Sounds pretty awesome, actually. But she's expecting me to also care for her, to make sure the house is safe and provided for. Wives are really good at taking care of their flesh. They beautify it. 
They take care of their man. They make sure he's fed. He's protected. He gets a cut. She wants to doctor that thing. Most wives do. Some wives don't have a stomach for it. They, they, they can't handle it. That's all right. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord does the church. So you've got to make sure, husbands, you have a bead, a pulse on your wife, and you know how to nourish her and care for her. You got to be able to look at her and say, these emotions are acceptable. It's okay. Cry. It's okay. Be angry. You got to also be able to look at her and say, all right, this is not acceptable. We got to rein this in. Yesterday, my wife was facing something. She said, I need to talk to you. So I was like, okay. Thought I was in trouble for a minute. But we go into the bedroom and she says, I need you to judge me on something. And she begins to relate a, itch, a situation to me. And I said, all right, number one, this is not right. This is not, this is right, not right. This is not right. Number two, this is right. This is right. This is right. You are perfectly okay here. You're fine here. We need to go fix this over here. And she wanted me to judge her concerning how she was thinking about a situation and the, what those were doing to her emotions. And I could judge it. She was accurate in that she wasn't right in a few places, but she was accurate in that she was right in a few places. And then I said, this is how we're going to fix it. And fixing it was just as uncomfortable as the mess we're in. Or you can just go watch football and put more burden on her to try to figure this out when she was supposed to have married a leader. If you married a leader, then dude, you better shut up and lead. But don't, girls, please don't fall for some dude with muscles that just winks at you twice. That'll mean nothing. Fall for someone who walks with God, who knows how to help you get to where you need to be. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The word nourish there, we always bring up, it means to nourish to maturity, to care for to maturity. The situation yesterday had my wife emotional, and she said, I can't judge these if I'm right or if I'm wrong. My emotions are beating me up. My emotions have me angry. And I said, number one, you don't need to beat yourself up on this. You're totally right. You're doing awesome. Number two, you have every right to be angry. Let's go fix this. That's nourishing someone to maturity. And it was, I was thankfully as a husband and her humility to ask me for help at judgment, we were able to put that whole thing to kibosh. Instead of letting it be this emotional whirlwind that ruins the rest of her day and our evening, I'm not emotional like that. I can read into the situation and say, that's not right, that's not right, that is right, that is right. That's part of being a husband. And if you take the time to do that, it's a lot more rewarding than ESPN. It's a lot more beneficial than another couple hours on a video game console. This is part of marriage. And because she trusts me, because I gave her help, because she can fix this thing, my family takes a step up now. We confront a problem. We take a step up now. Or I can just keep doing my thing and expecting her, my little maid, to take care of my natural whims. But that's not me keeping my covenant. And he cherishes his wife. That's the next word. That means to raise up, to mature up, to cherish it, to value it, to bring it up. And we ought to be cherishing our wife. You can't say you're cherishing your wife if you're not changing as a man. You can't claim you cherish your wife when you still do the things that irritate her. Maybe you can say, I cherish her, but I really stink at cherishing her. I cherish, Lord, help my uncherishingness. <laughs> if you really cherish her, go back to those dating days where you would have done anything for her. If you really cherish her. But what happens in our marriage is we get married and we just take advantage. We just assume she's always going to be there. We just assume she's always going to take the heavy burden. We just assume she's going to be there and do whatever we need her to do. She's just never going to actually, actually walk out. Let me, let me get a little spooky on you for a second. There is a thing called the spirit of divorce. It's a demon. And it will visit people who are in turmoil and tumult and under trial. And it will sow seeds of, you could have done better. And it's believable because it's probably half accurate. You could have done better if you stuck to the plan of God. But you can't break that now. That's why that's such a convincing lie. The other voice you'll hear is, you've been robbed. That's the, the beginning. That's the introduction of the spirit of divorce. It begins to talk about what it knows you're frustrated about because it knows you. And it'll say, you've been robbed. 
And then it'll bring up the thing that you have genuinely been robbed of. And you've got to begin to shut that thing down. Now, I think we're a pretty healthy church, but I would say over my 13 or 14 years of pastoring, I've probably had no less than 10 couples in our church come to me and say, I'm thinking about divorce, pastor. I'm thinking about leaving my wife. I'm thinking about leaving my husband. I think I should have married somebody different. I don't know what to do about that now. Maybe if we'd had, I've heard this many times. Maybe if we'd had this teaching 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we'd have never gotten married. And then, so then I'm pulling out the fire hoses, trying to put fires out. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not be talking about this. I understand you're frustrated. We can redeem this. Because unless there is unrepentant adultery, unless there's unrepentant domestic violence, there's no cause for divorce. Abandonment just disappear off the face of the earth. What you are is just miserable, and I'm sorry for you, but pray, fix this thing. We've got to cherish our wives and nourish our wives and be the leader our wives need to be. We've got to make sure nobody else would treat our wives better. We've got to make sure nobody else could love them better, esteem them better, because there is somebody out there that would. The devil will make sure of it, at least convince your spouse of that, their existence. This is a serious thing because the devil hates marriage. You can see the devil at work in Hollywood among Democrats, among Republicans, and among professors because they mock our marriages. They just mock marriage in general. You can marry a tree now if you want to. Marry your dog. Marry your sex robot. And they call it all good. Marry a couple people if you want. Love is love, they say. We say that's not true, and yet and we can't even master love in our own marriage. So let's go to 1 Corinthians here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't know if you're learning anything. All right. It's quiet this morning. I think all of us are realizing we can do better in our marriages. The church ought to have the best marriages on the planet. Believers ought to have the best marriages. A born-again man, mature. Marrying a born-again woman who is mature ought to have mature marriages. You ought to have marriages your kids want to emulate. You ought to be able, your kids ought to be able to go up and say, I want to marry someone just like dad. <laughs> your, your boys ought to grow up and say, I want to marry someone just like mama. Right now, Bud Bud says he wants to marry mama. He says, I, he said yesterday, he said, I want to keep this mama a little bit longer and then we'll marry her. <laughs> it's really sweet. I asked the girls the other night, I was testing my own preaching. I said, Girls, what would you think about marrying someone just like daddy? Abigail said, that would be amazing. It's like, so smart for seven. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter seven. Now let's look at a good litmus test. Verse one. Now. Concerning the things wherever you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Apparently, they had that as a question. Uh, Paul, can we like go touching women? And you know, Paul gets this letter and says, we can't get this letter to them fast enough. How many women are going to get touched before I can get them a letter that says, now concerning what you wrote unto me, stop touching women. We know this is you know, making out and heavy petting and all, all the, you know, careful little hands, what you touch. Because your father up above, he is looking down with love. Please don't touch your sisters in Christ. Amen. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So we're talking about touching and we know it's in the sexual context because he goes on to talk about flee fornication, no fornication. Have sex with your spouse. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise unto the wife, uh, also the wife unto the husband. A modern translation says conjugal rights. Let the husband render unto the wife conjugal rights. Due benevolence, grace thinking is another literal translation. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife has no power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband has no authority or power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other. 
Now, this, these passages can be taken out of context, and typically the selfish sex fiend of a husband will say, you have no right over your body. You're going to give it to me. Don't. Don't give it to him. That's a caveman brute, selfish. Amen. The context here is that you don't get to defraud each other. Uh, but at the same time, if there is a defraudment going on, if we are withholding sex, we have to recognize there's something dysfunctional in our relationship. So here's where we can tie sex into this. That when your soul is in love and your souls are selfless and your souls are putting each other before one, yourself and your souls are preferring one another, your souls can't wait to be together intimately. When you're courting, you're having really hard times not touching each other because you're wanting to come together. And then once you get married and the familiarity sets in, and the things you're working on and your, and your sins are coming out and your mind's getting selfish and your emotions and you're settling into the routine of life, now all of a sudden people are being offended, people are being hurt, and now they don't want to be intimate. And so one of the things we can do as a litmus test to test the health of your marriage is to see the frequency of your intimacy. Maybe, maybe not frequency necessarily so much as the intensity or the enjoyment of it. Because when your soul relationship is healthy, your intimacy relationship will be healthy. If you're rude to your wife, she's not going to want to be intimate with you. When you're rude to your husband, he's not going to want to be intimate with you. And so we can see here a litmus test. When you are in love, when you're preferring each other, when you're bearing each other's burdens, and so nobody's exhausted at the end of the night, there's this eagerness to come together and be intimate. There is always the caveman that just demands it and says, you're going to do it. Sweetie, you don't have to do it. That's a jerk. I feel sorry for you. Dude, you got a lust problem and you need to repent and get deliverance because that's not the love of Christ. Because there is such thing as marital rape. And that's when you force somebody to do something they don't want to do. Just because she has your ring on her finger doesn't mean she lost her will. And if you're a jerk and you stink... I wouldn't want to give you a hug either. If everybody else is avoiding you, the only reason your wife isn't is because you made a bunch of kids together. Sometimes she does want to avoid you. That's your fault. She should love you and want to be around you. Defraud you, not one the other, except to be with consent for a time that you may uh, give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this, not, uh, this by permission and not of commandment. And Paul goes on to talk about being single. Uh, one of the things we need to understand is that intimacy is all about uh, a unity of the soul. It begins in the soul. And when the hearts are knit together, it's easy to be intimate. Come with me to Proverbs. Just look at something there as we kind of tie this together. This is what we're talking about from Genesis chapter 2 in the one flesh relationship where the two shall be one flesh. Remember we said Adam and Eve were one person in the beginning. God called man them. And then he took Eve out of man. And now they're two separate bodies. And being two separate bodies, now they came together. And now they have one flesh. Paul, uh, uh, Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And they were brought back together through the act of lovemaking as one person. The, the issue is, when you marry that person God has for you, not the person that made you feel awesome the first time he winked at you and you hadn't had any attention in six days, but the person God has for you, your whole, the whole rest of your life is, is working towards being one. And the way it seems the Lord has arranged it is through the act of lovemaking or sex. You only get to achieve that in that moment of climax, if you will, that, that, that brief moment of lovemaking where you are face to face and you are being pressed together into one flesh. It is very much the original design of man. Man being one person becomes two separate then comes back together. And it's built as a reward for having your hearts right towards each other. It's not animalistic. It's not lust burning in the night like some bathhouse in the 70s. It's lovemaking because it's the closest you can be and you've so preferred each other and you're so thankful for each other. You just want to be more than just holding hands. You want to be more than just kissing. It must be more intimate than that. It's been pointed out by many people, human beings are the only folks that can make love face to face. 
I don't think river otters do it that way. We definitely know the homosexuals don't. It's reserved for marriage. Anything less than that is an abomination. Even heterosexual sex outside of marriage is an abomination. It violates God's plan. Abomination basically means it makes me want to puke. There are things mankind does that make God want to puke. And he said he would do as much in the revelation. I'll puke you out of my mouth. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, let's go in. Uh, I'll read the NIV. I think it'll read good in the NIV. Drink water from your own cistern. Cistern. That is a collection, uh, a hewn out rock hollow that collects water. And drink running water from your own well. This is all a Hebraic allegory for the sex drive. That'll be apparent here in a moment. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, now it's saying, should we have sex with everybody in public? No. No. Let them, that is your waters, be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. So there goes your one night stand hookup culture of grinder and tender and fraternities and sororities and the college experience. Our culture has taught our young people that sex is like holding hands. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's animalistic. It's disgusting. It is not freedom. It's disgusting. May your fountain be blessed. If you're having sex issues in your marriage, you pray that. Our fountain is blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, not the next guy's wife, not the 2.0 version who's 20 years younger than your current wife, the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. Uh, May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. That's how we know all this is allegory for the sex drive and lovemaking. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? So we see that lovemaking is designed to refresh your marriage. But it comes as a reward for putting each other first. For the husband, it means you're communicating with your wife. For the wife, it means you're communicating with your husband. And this is a reward at the end of, of, a, of a hard day, hard two or three days. And if you're married long enough, you may have to schedule this. And if you schedule it, it'll work just fine. Oh, but it's, it takes all the excitement out of it. Wait, 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 wait. So you mean you never had scheduled sex like your honeymoon night? That was something you scheduled like six months out. You were looking forward to it like every five minutes for six months. It's the most scheduled sex you ever had in your whole life. So what's wrong with Tuesday at 7.58 p.m.? Saturday, 10.05. Schedule that thing. I'm trying to help you. You guys are really religious this morning. I feel like this is Church of Christ. Even Church of Christ folks make babies. Even the Catholics have kids. I mean, they shut the thing down after they have kids, but these they have kids. You guys are acting like you don't know what I'm talking about. Let's back it up. Who invented sex? Who do you invent it for? So we're the best people on the planet to be talking about it and enjoying it. And he designed all those parts to work all those ways that they work. He called it fearful and wonderful. And you guys are going all Church of Christ on me on this thing. I don't appreciate it. I don't think the Holy Ghost does either. (laughs) Yeah, so your sex drive is designed to refresh each other. And you can judge the true health of your true marriage by by the quality of your lovemaking. If it's once a year, your marriage is unhealthy. If it's once a quarter, your marriage is unhealthy. If it's once a month, your marriage is unhealthy. 
If you need doctor's help, they got all sorts of medicine that helps. Do what you got to do. The reason ought to be that you're just, the reason, the lack of lovemaking ought to be a medical issue and not a heart issue. Most lack of lovemaking is a heart issue. But it's a litmus test. When she feels second class, she's not going to want to be intimate. When he feels neglected, he's not going to want to be intimate. So any lack of intimacy in a marriage, number one, it undermines God's original design, which is a one flesh relationship. It deprives you of the ability to refresh each other. It opens you up for the temptation to refresh each other with other people, and the devil's always got one of those in the works. You cannot tell me your marriage is healthy if there's not intimacy there. Because sex is reserved for you, one man, one woman, in holy matrimony, serving God. It's exclusively for you. You're the only people on the planet. God says, that's it. That's what I'm talking about. And you're like, I don't want none of that. But it's because our souls are not healthy with each other as they ought to be. But that comes back to the husband's leadership. It comes back to the wife's ability to love and pray. We have got to fix this. It's designed as a reward. We don't live for sex, but it's nice it's there when we need it. When we want to be intimate. We want to be close to each other. It's a way, pardon the baseball expression, it's a way of tagging up. You tag up, like let's come back together again, honey. But when... When she doesn't want to be intimate or he doesn't want to be intimate, that means there's a disconnect in your soul somewhere, and we can troubleshoot that. And let me also throw, I'm going to try to, we've got younger folks here, but we're all high school age or middle school. There's a difference between sex and making love. We ought to be aiming for making love. Sex is just an act. Love making is a lot more heart involved, a lot more soul involved, a lot more intimacy involved. If you have to, schedule sex and figure out how to turn it back into love making along the way. One thing is for sure, practice makes perfect. <laughs> oh, we should say perfect practice makes perfect. For some of you, I'd just be happy if you just scheduled it once a month. And then maybe work it up to like once every two weeks. I would think you'd probably find out, even if you scheduled it, some of you would still find an excuse. And we would kind of quickly troubleshoot where the problem is. I don't have time because I'm out uh, this morning to talk about such mental illness, I don't want to say mental illnesses, conditions as sexual aversion or touch aversion. And a lot of this deals with trauma from the past. You can get over all this if you want to by talking about it. But you and I know this is all tied to the heart because the things that used to excite us don't anymore because our heart has changed. You know, when, I, when me and Miss Manda were first dating each other, we were at, what was that Mexican restaurant? We always go to the real enchilada, Don Pablo's. One of our first hangouts was at Don Pablo's and her foot bumped mine under the table. And my heart went pitter-pat. Now for foot bumps me, I'm like, hey, you want to say I'm sorry? <laughs> yes, that's me. You're kicking. Please stop. There's no pitter-pat there. We've been married a pretty good piece of time now. Or I don't know if her heart ever went pitter-pat. Uh, sometimes now her feet touch mine in bed like, this is cold. Please, please get those feet. <laughs> My heart is racing, but it's not because I'm excited. It's because you just sucked all the heat out of my legs. And my, I'm going hypothermic. Things change. We get it. The familiarity sets in. And you have to maintain it. Your marriages go through stages, and it's a garden you have to keep tending to produce better fruit. But the regular sea or the, the, in, the, the frequency of your intimacy and the quality of it is a litmus test on your, the nature of your marriage. And you can't tell me we have sex once a year, we have a great marriage, because that ain't the case. Because a great marriage says, I can't wait to get home to be with you again. And it doesn't have to dry up after two or three years. Since we're just going to be Church of Christ this morning, Kylie, don't play the guitar. Let's just, we're just going to hum our altar call music. <laughs> you ought to be saying, hoorah, God bless America. 
I get to go home and practice the word today. Put those kids downstairs. We're going upstairs. Turn on TV. 30 minutes, kids. Anybody comes up those stairs in 30 minutes, you're getting all, you're all getting whippings. Fear God and the belt. Your mother and I need to do some discussing. Some of you enjoy pastoral assignments, so here's the deal. If you're married, and it's been more than, say, a week or two, I expect to see smiles when you come back to church tonight. <laughs> I'm serious. If it's been more than a week or two because you got little attitudes towards each other, so you're just like roommates passing like ships in the night, just going through the motions, say, all right, we get pastor told us. I don't know how. I'll tell you how. Shut the door. Lock it. Padlock it. Take your clothes off. Stand there in all your glory. Whatever you call it. One word's Shekinah, the other's Kabod. Kabod means heavy. Maybe it's your heavy glory. <laughs> Some of you it's Ichabod. The glory's gone. Stand there naked and say, what do we do now? I think we should lay on the bed. And you'll remember how this works. <laughs> Kylie, do you know the doxology? Can you play that? <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings. No, I don't want to sing it because I'm just making fun of how religious we're being right now. I'm trying to help jumpstart some of your marriages because it's real easy to get into a rut. So honestly, here's my thing. If it's been a week or two for you and you're married and you have no reason why you can't, you don't have a reason why you can't. So today is a good day. This is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. You'll remember parts is parts. You made kids. You can practice making another. All right, I'm trying to help your marriage. tough plowing in this church. I don't even know what to say to you. All right. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And you can go home and be intimate and remember why you loved each other and why you fell in love with each other. Remember, oh, this was fun. I forgot this. This was fun. We should do this more often. That's what pastor was saying. We ought to be doing this more often. Now, I don't need to text. I don't need you to send me like the referee. I don't need an emoji. I don't, I don't need, don't send me memes. Don't send me gifs. I don't... I don't need to know, because you don't tell me when you're doing the word the rest of the time. Don't worry, I'll be able to tell. Some of you will fall asleep in tonight's service is what will happen. Let us pray.